BCNA's Helpline provides a free, confidential phone and email service for people diagnosed with breast cancer. BCNA's experienced team will help with your questions and concerns and provide relevant resources and services. Call 1800 500 258 or email contact at bcna.org.au. Welcome to Upfront About Breast Cancer. Let's be upfront about the additional challenges of a breast cancer diagnosis when living in a rural or remote area. When you live outside a major city, there is often limited or no local cancer treatment services and long distances to travel. Then there's the financial impact that can add additional stress and hardship to an already significantly emotional situation. Joining us for this In Conversation episode are Tanya and Fiona. Tanya was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2005 when she was 32 and living in a rural community 100 kilometres from Adelaide. Fiona was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2021. She's had a mastectomy, four and a half months of chemotherapy, radiotherapy and has recently commenced hormone blocking medication. Fiona lives on a farm in southwest Victoria. This episode of Upfront about breast cancer is an unscripted conversation with our guests. The topics discussed are not intended to replace medical advice, nor necessarily represent the full spectrum of experience or clinical option. So please exercise self-care when listening, as the content may be triggering or upsetting for some. Over to Tanya and Fiona. Hi Tanya, it's great to meet you. Hi Fiona, how are you? Lovely I'm to very, meet you. Tanya, could you tell me a little bit about uh, your journey and what's happened to you? Yeah, so it's been about 17 years since I was originally, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I was 32, living nearly 100 k's out of Adelaide. We had a dairy farm at the time. So that was an interesting mix. I had three children too, youngest was two. So it was an interesting time trying to work around cancer treatments, dairy farming, kids, school, just the travel alone and trying to organise appointments on one day as opposed to two or three times a week with the, the costs of not just the medical appointments, the travel appointments for me meant driving to Adelaide every day or whenever it was required. So, you know, nearly 200 k's round trip. And because I was under the 100 k PAT scheme, I wasn't eligible for any help. Most of the time I did drive myself, it depended on what the tests were for. So my husband would try and take me, drive me down when he could. Sometimes the medical appointment had to be done like first thing in the morning or later in the afternoon because God forbid anybody could live outside of a, a city area and have to drive any more than 10 minutes to get there. So it meant yeah, I have to drive myself down. So your treatment and diagnosis was a lot more recent. What was your experience like, Fiona? Yeah, probably quite different to yours. Um, so with where we live, we're um, about 60 kilometres from a reasonably large rural centre. We're a lot further from Melbourne and we're fortunate enough to have cancer services in that. So for me, it's, um, it's 60 kilometres 
to that centre and back again. So my experience was also coloured a lot by all the COVID lockdowns. So we got caught up in that little um, can of worms. Um, so uh, I started off um, visiting my GP after I'd found found a lump and the test thing started. And um, I was in a bit of denial. And uh, so it took me a week to make the appointment. And then they said, oh, we need you back for something else. And oh, look, I'm too busy at work. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a week or two's time. Um, eventually uh, got there and had the testing done. And they were good enough to try and squeeze tests in on the one day for me. So I was there having uh, the mammogram and they said, look, you're going to need a biopsy. And I said, is there any chance of you doing it today? I don't really want another trip. And they were really obliging and very helpful. So I have to be grateful very much to the um, imaging people there. They did a wonderful job. And that saved us a couple of trips over the course of um, the various tests that I had. Things moved really quickly for me, though, um, back to my GP and then on to um, a surgeon. And I got in on a cancellation within five days of seeing the surgeon. So I had um, a real roller coaster from denial through to um, having the surgery done. And that was right in the middle of the lockdowns. There was no visitors, no nothing um, through that whole hospital stay. So that was that was a bit traumatic. Um, and quite difficult on my husband. We, because we're 60 kilometres, it's not far enough for him to have stayed where I had the surgery, not that he could have visited anyway. Um, so everything's sort of done in these, these day trips, and that's okay. We, we manage that all right. Um, and then, yeah, the, it continued on then to chemo and radiation. Chemo, fortunately, was also available there, and um, that was just day trips. Um, and like you, the nuclear medicine scan, it was here, come in, have the injection. We'll see you in three hours, go have a cup of coffee. Well, in the middle of the COVID lockdown, there wasn't any coffee anywhere anyway. So I think we might've spent the whole time just sat in the car because it was too windy and cold to go anywhere else. So it was a very boring day. <laughs> Um, and yeah, then uh, my journey carried on then to the radiation. I was fortunate um, to be accepted into the travel assistance scheme because that was daily radiation for five weeks. I did actually just make it over the line because it was every day. Um, technically, I didn't meet the guidelines, but the ladies at the radiation centre were very helpful in providing all the documentation. They just said, give it a go. So I did. And, and we did get some financial assistance for that, which we were very grateful for. So when I went to visit my GP um, after the biopsy, the diagnosis came back that I had um, a ductal carcinoma um, and the scans sort of seemed to show that it was around about four centimetres, but it didn't appear that there was any um, anything gone to the lymph nodes, which I was really grateful for. Um, however, when the pathology came back from surgery, it, it was um, a little bit different to that. It had spread to the lymph nodes um, and it was also a mixed kind of tumour. I had elements of both ductal and lobular, um, which might have explained why it hadn't been picked up earlier, why I hadn't seen it. Um, so that meant that um, I fell into a moderate to high level um, category for risk of cancer recurring, and that meant that um, chemotherapy was required. I had three cycles um, of one particular drug cocktail three weeks apart, and then another three cycles of another drug um, also three weeks apart. And I guess um, because of my professional background, I'm a physio, I was really keen to stay active through that time. And I managed that quite well um, during the first three cycles. And I fell in a heap for the last three. That drug affected me in ways that I hadn't anticipated. Um, and it's it's a tricky time in that you, you just pick yourself up and dust yourself off from the chemo after uh, after that. And then they start hitting you with radiation. Um, and the radiation, they were 
they were great, really helpful, and um, I, I think I fared fairly well in that. Um, but you never know with the side effects what's what's causing what, and you pick yourself up and dust yourself off from that, and then they hit you with the hormone treatments, which is where I'm at at the moment. So it's been a bit of an, an interesting um, interesting ride. Yeah, what's what's when you say when you were talking about your side effects, what sort of side effects? Because I know mine were varied from you know I had really good days to yeah. You know, over the toilet for most of the day or you know really tired how did how how what sort of side effects how did how did yeah. you fare with that okay so I, I everything was different every time with the chemo I, I couldn't put my hand up and say right I know what this is going to do to me I can prepare for it and and be right so the first cycle of chemo gave me a five-day migraine which I really did not appreciate at all um, and uh, the nausea was horrific but I don't know whether that was the migraine or whether it was the chemo um, uh, tiredness and I, I, I was just exhausted I couldn't think straight I'm, I'm sure I said some stupid things to my husband he hasn't hasn't brought those back up at me fortunately but I'm sure my brain wasn't functioning um, then the middle week I actually wasn't too bad but again because it was COVID times I kept well and truly out of circulation in that time um, and then I actually went back to work for a couple of days the final week before the next round um, and the next one they, they just affected me different ways every time nausea was high on the list but I think what it did to me more was changed my thinking skills so I wasn't remembering things I couldn't express myself properly my brain wouldn't work there was brain fog the second lot the second medications affected me far more physically so I ended up with a lot of foot pain I couldn't walk and walking's my go-to coping mechanism that medication also made it very difficult for me to exercise which was my other coping strategy the radiation side effects were more about fatigue and skin irritation and they didn't bother me anywhere near as much and yeah. yes air fell out and it hasn't grown back yet <laughs> <laughs> all right you know what there was a hidden advantage to that i was starting to get hot flashes already so you, you lose heat a lot quicker when you can pull your cap off and there's nothing on your head to stop it yeah you definitely do i know that feeling um yeah. for me my side it's very similar to you I, although i didn't have like the neuropathy and the pain and that I was lucky enough that I didn't have those side effects, the nausea, um, the tiredness, I suppose all those normal chemo and radiotherapy side effects. For me, being active on the farm and with, a two, with you know, three kids, one being a two-year-old, you know, we were working on the toilet training before I was diagnosed and then that went south really fast with me going through all the treatment. The brain fog, the chemo brain that was probably for me you know I'd find um, a nappy in the cupboard the pegs in the fridge <laughs> I'd forget to feed a calf I'd feed all the calves think I fed them all and I've not oh no you've missed one or you've missed or you've forgotten something so you know it was great that I had my husband and my older kids support that you know mum it made it interesting is probably the best way to put it because you, know, you have all those feelings and you know you go from your ups and your downs and, you know, because we are so, because as you know, living on a farm, you are isolated. Especially city people don't really get what you go through, the added headaches, for lack of a better word, of, you know, just trying to arrange travel and making city appointments, medical staff aware that, you know, you're travelling so far, you need to put them all into one day as much as possible um, as opposed to just, I oh, will just do this one this day, this one the next day. And that added extra level of 
hardness that city people don't get. So Tanya, I know that um, dairying's a, a twice a day, pretty well 24-7 job, and I can't imagine how you guys manage that. I mean, the cows have got to be milked every day. Did you call people in to help with the milking? Did you have um, some assistance there? Because that's it's a big deal trying to pull out of, of the milkings like that. It's just not an easy thing to do. No, we couldn't because my husband is Italian. His parents are very traditional. They were part of the farms. It was a family-run business. And I know it sounds really bad, but I sort of, in hindsight now, I'm a bit more understanding of where they're coming from with their beliefs and the way they were brought up. So, no, we weren't able to tell anybody. So, I don't know, we did it. So, our oldest was, I think he was 15 at the time. So, he helped out a lot on the farm. I continued working where I could and my in-laws um, looked after the two younger ones where they needed to and, you know, they do, they do meals occasionally. But, yeah, no, we had to be very self-sufficient just to keep the peace and keep what help we were getting. Yeah, and I can understand that that self-sufficient thing. I think that's a really big, big theme rurally um, and I see that in my work a lot that, you know, people want to deal with things themselves and and even if you want to reach out, it's difficult to um, because you don't know who knows what and as soon as you do, it's all around the community anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, and people might be being supportive, but you, you probably hadn't intended on them knowing exactly what was going on. So, yeah, I can imagine that would have been really tough for you in, in those circumstances. Yeah, it was. It was and we got through it. And I think, you know, we as hard as things are, you know, I don't know whether it's because we're, we're farmers and we live rurally or, you know, we just, and I come from a long history of farming, farming family. So it, it's just, you just put one foot in front of the other and, you know, you get up, you keep going. I think, yeah, it's just one of those things. I think it was ingrained into, you know, it's the way I've been brought up. It's <laughs> Absolutely. You know, same, same I mean? for me. Yeah. Early in my treatment, I was put in touch with a social worker in Adelaide through the Queen Elizabeth Hospital because that's where I had my chemo. And that was good. That was that was someone to talk to. Being a metropolitan social worker had the best intentions but no understanding of the added challenges. Yeah, and back then it's like, you know, we're talking 2005 in a rural area, you know, internet, that was dial-up. And if you're really lucky, it would load. <laughs> you know, I was only 32 with a young family. There was no information out there. I Googled as much as I could. I went looking in the library for books, any information I could get about it. And then it wasn't until I was in hospital after waking up from my surgery to remove the lump and all, all my lymph nodes that a lady who works in the hospital, she was not a nurse, but like she's in the admin side. She, she came in and she actually lives in an adjoining rural community, so, so probably about eight k's down the road. And she goes, oh, have you heard of Breast Cancer Network Australia? Well, I've got all this information. I was like, no. From there, I got the My Journey kit, which had the, I had a book on it, on young women, breast cancer and young women. It's like, thank you. <laughs> At the time, there was a breast care nurse. So this is prior to the McGrath Foundation. Um, worked a couple of days a week. She was amazing. So 
I'm glad you and had as much as I needed, it was go straight to, you know, uh, give her a call. And our kids went to the same school too, so I could talk to her, like, outside of her work hours. But, yeah, so with you, Fiona, where did you find your support? Hopefully you had more support than what I did. Um, I, look, my family were really amazing. I made a decision very early on not to try and hide my diagnosis, um, and that was largely around my work. So um, I was very busy with work in um, the local town and knocking back work left, right and centre because there are not enough health professionals out here. So <laughs> I did that for a very selfish reason. I didn't want to be answering the phone left, right and centre and saying to people, I oh, know, I'm sorry, I can't see you, I'm not well. So I just let it out there and said, okay, this is what's happened, don't ring. <laughs> and, that, and people were really good and they didn't. Um, so support-wise, um, because it was in the middle of the COVID lockdown, there was very little. Um, I remember the um, first day after my surgery, I, I was pretty doped up and they wouldn't let me out of bed very much. And I was desperate for a shower and they wouldn't let me and I was very cranky, but that's another story. The second day, they find, or I finally convinced them that I was allowed to get out of bed and that I was going to have a shower. So I went into the shower and with the assistance of a, a pretty young nurse, I must say. She was lovely, nothing wrong. She was just very young. And here's this 50-year-old woman stood in front of the mirror, burst into tears in front of this poor young nurse, and she's just like, oh. <laughs> I don't think she knew what to do or say. Um, and that was just a bit of shock. So um, I think that probably would have been a really good time for some support to have been arranged, but, but nothing happened then. I had some SMS contact from the breast care nurse, um, but didn't see her until the day before I started chemo. And I think that's partly due to the COVID restrictions and lockdowns. I actually haven't seen her since. Um, I wasn't put in touch with any social worker or psychologist. I was advised at some point, I can't remember when, that that was available, but I ended up having chemo at a different um, location to where that was available. So I was remote from there anyway. So the support um, was fairly well lacking. Um, I had a good relationship with my GP who then packed up and left. <laughs> uh, so so um, the support was tricky. I didn't actually know about BCNA until a throwaway line from the nurse that I saw, so a, a breast reconstruction nurse that I saw who was filling up the expander for me. And I didn't actually even think about that until a week or so later. And then I jumped online and some of the early um, diagnosis information was really helpful to me at that point. And a bit later on, I joined that online network and um, I, I never posted anything, but it was actually really helpful for me to read what other people's experiences had been. I think the risk when you are not necessarily supported face-to-face -face or with a lot of people around you or in some kind of a, a group setting where you can discuss this with people, you, you start to wonder whether you're, you're abnormal and experiencing things that nobody else does. You start to wonder if you're a bit weird, and I was starting to do that. So it was really helpful to actually read what some other people's experiences had been. I must say I did feel a little bit like I was peering in on other people's lives without licence, but um, it, I found that very, very helpful. Um, as like I know, like internet in a rural area can be interesting at times. Yeah. How was? How did you? Because you know, you you found a lot of information online. You found the online BCNA's great online network. Um, how did? How was your internet 
did you have issues any issues there or are you in a are you in a black spot are you in a good area no we're in a terrible area we're just short of needing satellite now that's amazing because where we live is not it's not um a low uh, lowly populated area there's heaps of us there unfortunately we just happen to live right in the middle of the end range of three separate towers for wireless broadband and so our poor router spends most of its existence deciding which direction it's going to take a signal from rather than actually doing anything useful um, so at that stage um, we, we we actually we had internet from three different companies and when one fell out, we'd try the next. And when that fell out, we'd go to the third one. And when that fell out, we'd go back to the first one. So we'd spend more time switching between providers and actually online. And we were paying for something like 50 megabits per second, and we were lucky to get two. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we were having the, the usual experiences for our region anyway. Um, halfway through that time we switched um, NBN providers to another one that's a bit more active in our area and things became a load better after that but if I was awake of a night couldn't sleep there was no point in me going up and checking the internet because in order for anything to work we had to have it on a timer where it'd switch off between 11 and 4 a.m to give the whole thing a big rest um, and our, our router's out in the shed, it's not even in the house. So there's no way at midnight I was um, nicking out to turn that on just to get online. So no, I didn't do anything like that. <laughs> Which is something that people in city, metropolitan areas really have, don't, don't, they take for granted, they just don't get that, you know, you know if you live in a city, internet's super fast, you just press a button, it's there. But as soon as you get out of those metropolitan areas, it's, oh, is it going to work today or how fast is it going to go? Can we load a picture? You know, internet bank. Yeah, everything's online now. You know, paying your bills, internet banking. It just doesn't always happen, which, yeah, people in the cities don't get. Mm, it can be so, very, very up and down. And I'm guessing you've probably got a similar similar experience in your area as well. We did um, up until we've got, we're lucky enough to have satellite now. So we get satellite broadband. It's not always the fastest, but it works. <laughs> and when we were on, we were on dial up until, you know, probably about five, five years ago. It's, it's so much better. So, yeah. So moving on, like, how did you go with meals? Like, did you... Were you cooking or did you have someone who came in to help? No, we, again, because it was COVID, there was, it was, the rules at the time were nobody in anybody else's houses. Yeah. Um, and I know caregiving was an exception, but um, we didn't go down that track. My parents live next door, which next door is um, about half a kilometre away, but it's still next door, okay? Um, but they're in their mid-80s, so that wasn't something I was about to ask them to do. But... Um, uh, I, I pulled up fairly well from the surgery and um, I saw me doing basic meal preparation as part of my rehab. So I, I did continue to cook after the surgery. My husband stepped in and helped where needed because I certainly wasn't able to cut a lot of things up. I'm right. I'm very right-handed and it was um, right breast that was removed. Yeah. Um, I'd had one offer from a friend um, to drop around some food Um which I declined because I, I felt like I needed to actually do that job. Um, 
I'm a really task focused person. So if I've got a list of things to do on my on my job list that that keeps me going and it stops me from dwelling on things that I can't change. And I think that was actually a really important coping mechanism at that point in time. So we we did that ourselves and 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 that was okay. That suited us, but I'm sure it wouldn't suit everybody. Yeah, I I, I remember like because you know, because I had no, well, I wasn't allowed to tell it. We weren't allowed to tell anybody. So there was no, there was very, like, my parents, my in-laws are great. Don't get that wrong. You know, they were great. They did, they did help out as much as they, as much as they could, especially it was, and it was really helpful when, you know, they'd take the youngest, you know, during the day so I could have a sleep or if I felt up to it, you know, I could go help, help on the farm, which was good. It kept me active, which helped which helped with my recovery and helped with the side effects. Um, so I'm glad that I had that because if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have, might not have coped quite so well. Because as you know, keeping active during treatment is vital. Um, I got involved, um, I also for support, I also got involved with, um, we had a cancer support group locally um, and they, and the lady who ran it was, Carla, she was really great. Um, unfortunately, the issue issue um, was everyone, all the ladies involved in it, were all in their seventies, eighties. I think there was one little old lady in her nineties. God bless her. So, you know, while they try, like they did their best to support, they didn't. I suppose they couldn't understand where I was coming from, like, yes, they knew the side effects and that, but, you know, being a, a young mum with, you know, some of them had come off a farm, so that was, you know, they understood the work side of it, but just the being a young woman with breast cancer and dealing with a young family, school, um, being put into menopause at the age of 32, um, was it was an outlet, but it wasn't, you know, it was support, but it wasn't, like the support I really needed. Um, mm -hmm. Cancer Council were great. Um, they put me in through Cancer Connect, put me in touch with a lady who similar age, um, but had, um, as it was called back then, pre-breast cancer. So I, so we, you know, she, she'd rang and we, we'd have a chat every now and then when I need, just, I just needed that outlet to talk to someone that was my own age and understood. So yeah, that was great. So um, yeah, it was interesting. You know, how did you go? Do you have any children? Did you no, have anyone that you need to look after? So no, I don't have children. So um, my husband and I um, live in the house next door to my parents. Um, so yes, yeah, so we provide some care to my parents. They don't need very much. They're pretty self-sufficient themselves and, and they don't ask for help usually. We have to anticipate it. Um, but I'm the, the primary, um, not carer, but um, financial manager and plan manager for my sister who has an intellectual disability um, and lives in a nearby town. Um, and she's covered under the NDIS. So um, I think it was just before my diagnosis, things had started to get difficult with her. She has a concurrent health issue that meant she was burning through her support hours at an alarming rate and we knew there was a problem and I'd been um, at the NDIS for some months about this and it finally 
came to a head um, around her diagnosis and she ran out of funds. So yes, we needed some help there. Um, the people supporting my sister were fantastic. There were staff actually going in pro bono to help her for no no money, which was just amazing. But yeah, that was an added layer of stress that I, I really did not need um, at the time. BCNA's online network is an active peer-to-peer -peer support community where people affected by breast cancer can find information and connect with others who understand what you're going through. Read posts, write your own, ask a question, start a discussion and support others. The online network is available for you at every stage of your breast cancer journey, as well as your family, partner and friends. For more information, visit bcna.org.au forward slash online network. Tanya, did you get support from within your local community? I, I, I hear what you're saying, that the pressure was not to talk to other people about your diagnosis. So did you manage to get much other support from the community where you work? Because my, my experience was so completely different. I'd let everybody know. Yeah. No, because no one was allowed to know. Oh, we weren't allowed to tell anybody. I told my immediate family, realistically, I don't think we were meant to tell anybody, but, you know, we still told close friends that so they knew, A, that they're our best friends, and B, you know, so they knew. So if we were meant to go there one day and all of a sudden we ring up and say, look, we're not, man, can't make it, they would understand. And, you know, they were really, they were supportive too. I mean, they live probably an hour and a half away. So support for day-to-day -day things wasn't like, you know, they couldn't just bring around a meal or what, you know, or come do some cleaning or whatever, but it was more that emotional support that was really good. Um, I know you, we, when we were speaking earlier, you were going to have, you're having breast reconstruction. How are you dealing with that? Ah, um, okay, so this is this is another another thing that I, I relied on that online network for quite a bit. Um, so I, I joined in the the breast reconstruction group and um, followed a few people's journeys there for a little while. It's going to be an expensive exercise. It's one that I'll follow through because I can't handle the sensation of the the expander being there. It's it's really quite uncomfortable. Um, my job usually involves going to a hydrotherapy pool quite regularly, which is why I made the decision to go down and have a reconstruction because all I could see in my mind's eye was a prosthesis coming out in the pool and me having to dog paddle after in front of all my patients. And that did not fill me with joy. No. <laughs> so, and look, maybe the prosthesis are better than that, but at, at the time when I had to make the decision about whether I was going to go down that path early, which to me makes a lot of sense medically, um, that was all I could think of. And I just said, no, I'll have a reconstruction. Anyway, that's, that's, that part's by the by. Um, so, yeah, I'm booked for a reconstruction um, at the start of June. That'll be three months after I finish the radiation. The plastic surgeon um, was very clear about that, that that amount of time needed to lapse, um, and I can't wait to get rid of the expander. <laughs> I went to the pool as a trial um, uh, last, last week. Yeah, last week. Things floated where they hadn't ought to be floating. It was a very uncomfortable experience. <laughs> It's not exactly socially appropriate to be holding a breast down while you're doing this stuff. In the <laughs> so I'm not going to get into the pool very much. And if I do, I'm going to have to have something else on than what I had because it, it just did not work for me. Yeah. But, you know, it's really good that, you know, as much as it's stressful and it's painful, we can laugh about it. Mm. 
I think that's what gets us through, that being able to look at the funny side in it. Yeah, absolutely. And well, the the my current funny side one is that the, the hair on my legs is growing back a lot faster than the hair on my head. And I think that's the ultimate insult. And nobody can tell me why that happens. It's really annoying. Yeah. My hair grew back so thick. It was unbelievable. But for the rest of my body, shaving, what's that? Occasionally, once, maybe once a month if I need to. I play netball. So I wear a short dress and, you know, I used to have to, you know, used to have to shave my legs to wear shorts or anything. I'll check my legs like, yeah, no, they're all good. There's maybe one hair I'll pluck it out. So, so it's like this thing, you know, as heart-rending and as stressful as losing my hair was, coming out of it now is like, cool. It's a, it was like one of those, it's an added benefit that you don't, and not everybody gets it, but it's one of those great things that comes out the other side of it. How did you go for your um, expenses? Because I know with me, I did private and public. I did a mix of the two because I suppose it's just the way it works. Some areas public worked um, and other areas private worked better than the public system could ever dream of. Mm. Um, So my surgeon was private because my GP couldn't get me into the public system. And he was great. I don't know whether, you know, he looked, he took pity on me or whether his rates were just, you know, not too bad. You know, Medicare covered a bit and that there was still an out-of-pocket that we had to pay, but it wasn't too bad. And at the time we were on the health, had a healthcare card. So I think we were really lucky that we had that because it made, you know, thresholds and that lower for us. My chemo was public. And as great as the public system is, I don't know whether I'd go down, if I had to, if it did come back, I don't know whether I would go down that path again. I suppose it was more because I live in a rural area. We had to get up early, milk cows, drive down. It was a full day at the QEH, come home, and then it was milking. I mean, we're not milking anymore, but it's just the full day. It's really hard on yourself. And all those trips backwards and forwards to Adelaide and, you know, I'd hate to be doing it now with the price of petrol now. It would, and you're probably seeing that with your trips. And it's like, it's just how, I don't know how people can get, can do it. Because I know it was bad enough for us at the time, especially when I was doing radiotherapy, that was six weeks. I mean, not weekends, but every other day for six weeks. So, yeah, we ran through a set of tyres with it. We went private with radiotherapy. It was either go private with radiotherapy or stay down Adelaide for six weeks at the Cancer Council Lodge, which for us, it just wasn't going to work, not with young kids, not with the farm. First week was about $1,000 for the first week of radio. But the Medicare safety net kicked in. So after that, after the first week, Medicare paid for pretty much most. And by the time we got to the end of it, they were paying for all of it. Yeah, how did you go with it? Yeah, like you, I did a mixture of public and private. Um, so our, uh, I was very fortunate. Our health fund's been very good. Um, so there was some out-of-pocket with the surgery. Um 
I think I wouldn't have chosen to go public with the surgery given I got in five days privately. Um, I think if I'd had to wait any longer, I'd have been a, well, I would have been a wreck because I wasn't sleeping. And if that had lasted for a couple of weeks, I can't imagine what I'd have been like. Um, so that was private. There was out of pocket there. The chemo, I ended up going private for as well. The prime reason for that was that they actually had exercise equipment in um, with their uh, chemo suite. So I was actually able to exercise while I was having chemo. And that's something that's a relatively new um, innovation, but um, they're showing that that can actually be helpful. That wasn't available public. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I did that. Um, the oncologist is through the public service. The radiation oncology and radiation was public. Oh, no, sorry, it's private, but it was bulk built. Um, and uh, that was done that way because there's no choice. There was one provider and that's all. Um, so, yeah, mixture, and I'll be going private for the reconstruction because I'm in a hurry to get the expander out and on the public list, especially with COVID, that could be a couple of years and that that's just not going to work um, for us. So we'll, we'll cop the out-of-pocket for that, yeah. So mixture, like yourself. Mm. Yeah. What sort of, like, based on our joint experiences, and, you know, mine was a little while ago, but still, you know, still very relevant for for people that live remote, you know, reg regionally and rurally, and then with yours, you know, very more recent, what sort of tips would you give someone who was looking at, you know, just getting, just been diagnosed? Yeah. Look, I think um, rurally it's going to be really important to link in with whatever you can. So the BCNA resources were um, really helpful. I'm sorry that um, nobody pointed me to those earlier. That would have been really helpful. I read the Cancer Council booklet and it, it was good, but I think uh, the BCNA resources perhaps provided a little bit more of what I needed on more an emotional level and the online network, I think that was really helpful for me. Um, so I'd encourage people, even if you're not comfortable posting yourself, join that network, even if it's just to see what other people's experiences are and to re reassure yourself that, you know, this is okay, it, it's normal, you're going through something, it's unpleasant and it's, it's okay to not feel like you're coping. Um, because I think it's a really difficult time and if you're not able to have face-to-face -face support, um, then that's that's probably your next best option. Um, and for me, that was really important. Yeah, I, I definitely agree because, you know, things have changed so much since I was diagnosed. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't that online support. There wasn't that online community that for me, uh, you know, I'm part of that online community now because, you know, breast cancer, you know, we go through our treatment, but it just doesn't go away. You know, I was on hormone therapy. You know, I only came off probably about three or four years ago. You know, and there's always the fear of reoccurrence and that, and that's where I found, that, you know, the, the support that BCNA have online through their online communities is amazing. So, yeah, I agree. I totally think, you know, anyone I, anyone I talk to that's just been diagnosed, that's, you know, probably one of the first places I say, look, get online, have a look there, join up. Have you got the My Journey kit? You know, BCNA is fabulous resources I mean and as you said you know you've got cancer council too that's that'd be mine you know and then you know thinking of after that you know your planning of trips and I think finding for me finding someone who can help you advocate with the medical professionals if you've got to travel to a major center or in my case our state capital 
and hopefully, you know, there's a breast care nurse, whether it's a McGrath breast cancer nurse or, or a just, you know, once put on by the local hospital, get in touch with, you know, if they haven't already made contact, make contact with them, finding what other resources are out there, you know, whether, you know, do you qualify for PATS or is there a community transport network scheme that you can get in to help you with the travel and help you plan those appointments? Yeah, and I think that's a, a really good tip. I, I didn't know that... Um, I needed to contact the breast care nurse uh, or to put my hand up for help. I somehow thought that a lot of those things would have just um, been offered or there'd be some kind of a support group or network or something locally that I would have been able to tap into to find that. That didn't happen. Um, and it's, it's interesting, the other thing that I think occurred um, is because I'm a health professional myself, I think the assumptions made that you just know all that stuff anyway. Um, and if anybody else is in that that situation, um, this breast cancer was not part of my world um, before diagnosis. And no, I don't know about that. I might be a health professional, but breast cancer was not what I did. Um, so I think if you know there's anybody else out there really experiencing something similar, um, it's probably worth having somebody with you who can advocate for you because you you do cop a lot of um, medical professionals assuming things that you may not actually be able to do like the oncologist who told me to go on YouTube how to insert my own um, implant said go go to the YouTube and you'll be right I don't do needles oh my god he didn't yeah so I I, I took the um I, I took myself off to um, the practice nurse at my GP's then and said, look, I've been told to YouTube this. I had a look at it. I can't face it. You're going to have to do it. And and she's been great. And maybe one day I'll get around to doing it myself. But so please don't let people take you on that journey that says, oh, you'll be right. Because I can imagine um, my dad used to put needles into cows and that's the next thing. Oh, you're a farmer. You can shove a needle in. It's just like doing I, it to a cow. I know. <laughs> Like, really? I don't think so. I know. <laughs> oh dear. Sorry, that was a little bit of a diversion, but anyway. Hey, but it's it's a very real thing that rural people get. It's, you know, they wouldn't think of saying, you wouldn't even think of saying that to someone who lives in the city. It's unbelievable. You know, you just, what? YouTube? I don't think so. How about you come and try it on my internet connection first? <laughs> yes, I, I was a little taken aback myself, but anyway, I, I look, it's not. I suppose it's not technically difficult, but the thought of doing it after what you've been through, and they had lots of trouble finding veins in me. So I look at a needle now, and my veins just dive. They <laughs> they don't stay anywhere useful at all. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person like that. And maybe I'm not the only person who it's been suggested they can do it themselves. But maybe that was one bridge too far for me. Yeah. How did you go went with travelling? I know for me, especially when I was doing radio, I made it my my time. I looked at it, you know, the hour trip each way. That was very much my time. So I cranked the radio up or chucking my favourites, tape, yeah, tape, not CD, tape. Tape, yeah. <laughs> Did have a few CDs, but I, I think the car had a tape deck in it or the radio, and that was my time where I just zoned for me. So that's how I managed to cope. How did you cope? Um, that was the time that um, I was actually taking myself through the podcast series um, with Charlotte Totman. Um it was my emotional time. So 
the box of tissues did get used a fair bit in the car in those journeys because it was a time where I felt that I could listen to and deal with that and there wasn't another task that I could do because I was driving and I was well enough to do all the driving myself and it was about an hour and a half round trip. So I'd get through one or two um, podcasts and some of them I'd listen to multiple times. And I think that was really helpful. It's making me a bit emotional now as I'm talking about it. But um, <laughs> I think that was a time that I was able to to spend thinking about that side of things. And I think that's part of an ongoing journey that I'm still working through. But yeah, that's how I did it. The podcasts. that was a really good time for that. And um, uh, at, at that point in time, we well, we ran some pretty old cars, so I was plugging the mobile phone in and just cranking the volume up high and hoping to goodness reception didn't drop out while I was driving. And now I've got a modern car and I just tell it, play podcast, and it comes up. <laughs> Very exciting. Just comparing our two experiences, it's amazing. You know, in some ways it's come, like the support, and that's just come so far. But then, you know, there are still things that, you know, that we we both dealt with that haven't changed at all that, you know, really do need to be changed, you know, especially, you know, the support in areas, it's really great. But in other areas, just when it comes to that city versus rural, it hasn't changed. The city needs to do better. There is also the, the issue of perhaps some of the health professionals not being available. So social workers and psychologists are very thin on the ground and maybe COVID's helped us out a little bit there because there's telehealth. Um, in my circumstances, I work right next door to a psychologist and, and she, she'd be great and she'd be lovely. And there's times where I've seriously considered uh, phoning her up, but I just can't quite imagine myself walking out of my office and trundling in next door and uh, people in the cafe right next to were going, oh, there's Fiona. Oh, she's going in to see whoever. Um, yeah, so I think there's issues with anonymity, uh, you know, and being able to do that in a, um, what's the word I'm after, like private or sensitive way rurally is quite quite a bit more difficult perhaps than it is yeah. in a city where you might need to go to the next suburb. But for me to do that, I'm going to have to do another 120-kilometre round, round trip to, to do that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm sure, again, I'm not the only person like that. That's going to be a common rural experience because psychologists and social workers are very thin on the ground, as I'm, I'm sure you know as well, yeah. your area. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you don't have those access to services in rural areas that people take for granted in the cities. And it comes down to distance and then comes back down to the dollar, you know. And I think there's also a reluctance for some health professionals to come rurally. I know we're very short of them in, in our area and I think that's common across rural areas for health professionals of all sorts, not not just psychologists and social oh. workers, but for, for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and it just makes access for all sorts of things difficult. So, I mean, for people who may be needing ongoing help with lymphedema or something else, again, we've just got that long journey to find somebody who specialises in that area. That can be a real barrier for people, I think. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you today, Fiona. Thank you. Thank you as well. Thanks to Fiona and Tanya for sharing their stories. This podcast was brought to you with thanks to Suzanne. BCNA's My Journey has a range of resources for people affected by breast cancer living in rural and remote regions of Australia. You can sign up by visiting myjourney.org.au. And don't forget, as the ladies mentioned, the BCNA's online network is an online peer-to-peer -peer support community where you can connect with others going through a similar experience, depending on your internet connection, of course. To join, visit BCNA's website. 
Don't forget to subscribe to Upfront About Breast Cancer to ensure you never miss an episode. Download so you always have one to listen to and leave a rating and review to tell us what you liked about the episode. If you can complete the survey, you'll find it in the show notes and this helps us to tailor and create content that's relevant to your breast cancer diagnosis. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Curtin. It's good to be upfront with you. Looking for practical information to help you make decisions about your diagnosis, whether DCIS, early or metastatic breast cancer? BCNA's My Journey features articles, webcasts, videos and podcasts about breast cancer during treatment and beyond to help you, your friends and family as you progress through your journey. It also features a symptom tracker to help you manage the changing symptoms you may encounter during your own breast cancer experience. My Journey. Download the app or sign up online at myjourney.org.au.